There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upward, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his, uh, Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. They, th then they passed <clears throat> through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. And there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, "Is the seer here?" They answered, "He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today in the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat." For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord, said to him, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke to you. He, he it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me in the morning, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? It is not for you. It is not for you and for all your father's house. Saul answered, I am not a, Benjam I am not a Benjaminite, for, 
Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. At that, at the, then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further, farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three, goat, three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall get, come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave, Samuel, uh, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel told you. 
And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Lord, we are thankful for your word. And uh, Lord, we are often, Lord, amazed and perplexed at what we read. And I ask that this morning that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts and minds as we contemplate your word this morning. Lord, that things would crystallize, that we would be able to see, Lord, the flow of what you're doing in raising up your leader, and that you would allow us, Lord, to, uh, to, to glean the, the, the truths and the, the strengths, Lord, that we need to get from these passages, in particular this section, uh, so that we can live our lives for your glory. And Lord, just allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your text, Lord, to, uh, to, to see, Lord, how we can um, apply this personally in our lives, and Lord, how this, Lord, really points ultimately to you as our Lord and Savior. So Lord, allow us today to be strengthened by your word. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. As I mentioned before, um, uh, before we read, we're going we're gonna to hover over this text. Now, you ever been on a hovercraft before? H-O-V-E-R, craft. That's an inside joke for some of our elders. Um, a hovercraft goes high on the water, and it just kind of skims the water. Um, you ever flown maybe in a, uh, in a helicopter? Anyone ever done that before? And, and as you're doing that, you, you get a completely different view of what's going on. You may see some significant things as you're as you're traveling, um, but the whole point is to get from one destination to another, and maybe it's to catch a few sights. What's gonna happen as we go through this passage here is we're not gonna deal with every little, uh, every little bit, every little tree, every little nuance that may be there. There are gonna be some significant ones that will, that will be connected to further sections of scripture of the story that will really have some significance. And uh, so if, if we don't get to something this morning, if we don't spend a lot of time on something that may be of concern to you, um, it may not be central to the story, but it actually may be a little bit more connected to something else that we'll see um, in a little bit, okay? And so I just, wanna, I just wanna prepare you because most of our time here, we've been in the book of Ephesians and we're dealing with, you know, here's this word and here's this tense and all that kind of stuff. And even as we've gotten into some of the, um, the, the narrative here, it's been a little different. And uh, so this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna take a, maybe a huger chunk uh, as, we've, as we've read here this morning and seek to understand it and uh, to apply it to our lives. Well, uh, let's, let's uh, um, now take a moment just to think about what God has before us. The story's told of a politician after receiving the proofs of a portrait that was taken by a photographer he storms back to the photographer because he's not happy with these portraits, and this is what he says. This picture does not do me justice. And the photographer replied, sir, with a face like yours, you don't need justice, you need mercy. <laughs> so today, uh, we're gonna be focusing on the subject of mercy. And it's a word that kind of has uh, broadened in its understanding. And one of the ways that, that mercy is often described understood is, is basically an illustration that connects um, mercy and justice and grace kind of together. Um, imagine if you stole, let's say, $5,000 and uh, you were caught and you're standing before the judge 
Um, if the judge was going to exercise justice, he would give you what you deserve, right? Here's the, here's the punishment. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is the withholding of what you deserve. It's the restraining of that justice or that judgment on you. So maybe that person who was guilty and standing before the judge, when they receive mercy, um, maybe the, the penalty for them would be less than the justice. The justice might be, hey, you're gonna get five years in jail. Mercy would say, you're only gonna get one, okay? So it's, it's less than what you deserve. There's a withholding, there's a restraint going on. And then grace would be kinda like the opposite side of the coin where you're getting what you don't deserve. So that's when you're guilty before the judge and the judge says, hey listen, I'm not gonna be just and I'm not gonna be merciful, I'm gonna be gracious, so here's some keys to a brand new car and here's $10,000 and um, there's a, an apartment that has been set aside for you, okay? In other words, you're getting something you totally didn't deserve, totally unexpected. All right? Now that's just one way to kind of separate an understanding of those three words, and it's helpful to some degree. It's not a full way to illustrate it, but it's a helpful way to do that. But as we focus in on mercy, um, if mercy is not getting what you deserve, if we just left it there, it would be a little cold. Um, because mercy is an, an expression of God's love. It flows out of his goodness. This is how A.W. Pink describes God's mercy. He describes it as an outflow of God's goodness that is ready to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Okay, it's an outflow of God's goodness that is ready to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. And we are all guilty. And because of that sinful guilt, he looked down in compassion and mercy. And in mercy, he is restraining what could be what we receive and is holding it back. Now, that's not just by means of salvation. It's also by means of us living our lives with God because when we sin, and we all do that, sin has natural consequences, does it not? And when sin has natural consequences, God can be just and say, you're gonna get the natural consequences. He can be merciful and restrain those consequences. And so as we see the, the, the life of Israel, as we see Israel in this ebb and flow story of 1 Samuel, we've seen them come and repent, we've seen them now rebel against God and say, we want a king, like all the other nations. And so at this point in time, Israel is in a state of what? Rebellion. But God, in his mercy, and you might even say, judgment <laughs> is going to give them what they want. And in his exercise of giving them what they want, he does that in a merciful way, okay? And that's really the, the, the focus and the attention of what we're gonna be looking at this morning. Look, if you would, please, at chapter, uh, well, no, actually, just listen. Exodus thirty-three nineteen says this. And this is God speaking to Moses on the mountain. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is the one that determines whether there's gonna be mercy, justice, or grace. But we are 
the privileged beneficiaries of, of justice and mercy and grace, but that justice was laid on the shoulders of Christ ultimately, and we have been also granted mercy and grace. Now, let's uh, think also just about the setting here, and the setting being Judges, the end of Judges, and just kind of painting the picture once again for how we got to where we are. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And with that backdrop, we, we were introduced to the, the depraved nature of Israel at that point in time under the spiritual leadership of Hophni and Phinehas who had distorted the whole, um, the whole house of God system. And we also learned a little later that the people were actually worshiping other gods, and so there was a really unhealthy context. But in the midst of all that, God's mercy was at work, right, in raising up this man, Samuel, the little boy, in the house there with Eli, in the house of God, and he started to learn how to be a priest. And then we're taken away because Israel, still under the oppression of the Philistines, um, goes out to battle, and they think, if we just have the ark with us, that we're gonna win. They take the ark, they're defeated in battle, and the Philistines take the ark back to their cities, and it goes from city to city to city because it's causing havoc on their people. Seven months later, they come back with the ark and say, you know, take it back, take it back, we don't want it. And we know there that there was a celebration, um, but that celebration didn't please the Lord, and so even the people at Kadesh, uh, was it Kadesh Barnea? No, can't remember the name of the place, but they, they send it on now to, to um, Beersheba, and that's where it stays. Now, that's the ark story. After that, Samuel ministered. He judged the people, and ultimately the result of that was repentance across the land. And then, there's a number of years that take place because Samuel is growing old. If you remember last week, in, in chapter eight, we heard that the people were concerned about the next phase in Israel's history. And so, rather than trusting God as their king, they rejected him and they demanded, even though they were warned against having a king like the other nations, they still said, we want that kind of king. And so now, we're picking up at chapter nine where God now begins the process of giving them the king that they, we could say, want and that they deserve. But in the midst of all that, he is also being merciful. Now we get a little glimpse of what God is doing from verses 16, or verse 16 in particular, of chapter 9. And so just, just follow with me, if you would, please, at verse 16. This is an insertion by the narrator, but it helps us understand what is going on in the flow of the story here. It says, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince. Sorry, this is, I'm getting things mixed up. This is God speaking to Samuel about what's gonna be happening in the story, okay? So tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my, my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. All right, so as we, as we think about what is going on here, we see the merciful hand of God, even in providing the king that the people say, we want. Why? Because notice what it says here. He shall save my people from 
the, the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because of their cry. And so we want to focus just a little bit here on, on the man, Saul, and just kind of pick up a little bit about him. Um, he says, I'm sending you a man. Well, who is this man? His name is Saul, and the name Saul means asked for. All right? So God is giving them the one they asked for. Okay? And he is, his lineage then, if you notice in verse 1 there, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, and a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Now, we don't necessarily get this impact because we're removed from that culture, but the, the Benjamites were kind of considered the, the lower tier of the tribe, so to speak. Okay, so he was kind of a from a kind of an obscure family. They had some wealth, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, they were a stunning family. Um, we also are told something about his appearance, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upward, uh, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people, all right? So, I mean, he, he's the kind of guy that ultimately the world wants. He's the kind of leader that would be on GQ magazine. He's the kind of leader that would be, a, you know, the quarterback of the team, so to speak. He had that kind of a, of a stature, that kind of appearance, that kind of attractiveness to him. Now, you just want to file that away. That doesn't have so much impact in the story right now, but it will as we continue on. Okay, so some of this, this information here, some of this, this data about him is helpful, but we're, we're getting a picture of, of who he is. But I, I think we want to go back to the fact of his motive, or this motive that we find here that God reveals, right? And that is, um, in that last part of verse 16, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So even in their rebellion, how is God responding to his people? He's responding with mercy. Now, friends, hear that. Just, just hear that message. When you and I rebel against God, guess what? He's still merciful to us. And today, as we go through this passage, we're going to see some of the ways that God is merciful to the people of Israel through the lens of what was happening with Saul. And we can see also in those same ways that he is merciful to us. Okay, and it's going to come through four different areas. I'm calling them um, providence, revelation, strength, and mystery. Um, those aren't necessarily what goes in the blanks. We're kind of leading there. Okay, now it's mercy because they don't deserve his compassion. It's mercy because sinfulness, failure, and frailty are all too common, but God is still uh, shining his light on them, so to speak. It's mercy because even though the people have rejected God as king and desire a king like the nations, God is condescending to their wishes. And God is merciful to us. We don't deserve his compassion, his kindness. We continue to be sinful and fail him. But God doesn't give up on us. Right? So there, there's, there's, there's this wonderful message of mercy. Let's begin now at what I'm calling the detailed providence of God. The detailed providence of God, which is an exercise of his mercy. 
what seems to us to be an unusual series of circumstantial events are actually the detailed providence of God. I just tried to outline these a little bit, but first of all, we have this, this whole concept of finding the donkeys, right? The donkeys are lost, and he's, Saul's sent out with his servant to go looking for these donkeys, and he goes to one place, uh, he goes to the country of Ephraim, and, or the land of Shalishah, and he can't find them there. And he goes then to Shalim and the land of Benjamin, he can't find them there either. It's been a fruitless search that has landed them in the land of Zuf. And Saul is concerned that his father will be worried about him. You ever lost anything before? You just can't find it? Hey, this is Christmas, right? You're looking for that gift. And you go to one store and it's not there, and you go to another store and it's not there, and you go to another store and it's not there, and then your spouse calls you, where are you? You're supposed to be home, and you're like, well, I gotta find the gift, well, I'm worried, all right? So there's some reality of what's going on here. He's going out there, and of course, this is before the days of cell phones, in case you're wondering, okay? Um, doesn't know where he's at, and, and so here they are in Zuf, and, and his servant is aware that in this particular city, where they're at, is a seer, and don't, don't get carried away with that, it's a man of God, okay, that's what they called him, and that's, of course, talking about Samuel. And he says, well, why don't we go and talk to him? Because he always speaks the truth. And so, okay, well, let's find him. Okay, well, let's ask. And so they end up meeting these women. And oh, yeah, we know exactly where he is. Now, the point here is this. Details, details, details. Right? He, he, they wouldn't have been in Zuf unless what? The donkeys had been lost. Okay? And they go on a journey. And I don't know that they necessarily sat down with a map and said, okay, we're going to go here, and then we're going to go here, and then we're going to go here. They probably just said, well, let's go to this first place. And then from there, they're not there. Let's go to the next place. Let's go. It was all just circumstantial, coincidental from their perspective. But let me remind you, God speaks to Samuel and says, tomorrow, <laughs> I'm sending you a man. See, God is in the business of ordering the details of his providence. These were not just circumstantial, coincidental things. This was all part of God's purpose and plan. So we go from finding the donkey to finding the prophet, right? Um, the servant, or uh, Saul says, well, we can't go empty-handed. We need something to give him, and we have no bread in our bags, so what are we going to do? And the servant says, oh, I just happen to have a quarter shekel in my pocket. Okay, details, details, details. Okay, and so they get to the city, they ask the woman coming for water, and it's, and it's like they, they just know, they've been watching Samuel all day long, and they know the details of his life to say, oh yeah, this is where he's going to be. Okay, again, God's details at work. Now, how do we know that all these things or these details are pointing us to God's providence? And this is where the narrator inserts himself, verse 15 through 17. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. 
You shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Just think about that. So God's telling Samuel, hey, tomorrow this is gonna happen. The donkeys aren't even lost yet. But God is orchestrating the affairs of life to accomplish his purposes. Providence at work in the details of Saul's life. So lost donkeys, journey to Zeph, servant suggestion, a quarter shekel, the women coming to draw water, all of these details of God's providence in this story are drawing our attention to God and to his loving care and orchestration, in this particular case, of Saul and his, him raising him up as a leader. But it doesn't stop there. Because after this little, this little insert, when Saul finally finds Samuel, he's given further instruction and detailed information about the donkeys. He's told to meet up with Samuel for dinner later, and when he gets there, he is ushered to the banquet table to sit at the head of the table, and if you notice in the text, it says to the, the cook, go get the food that was prepared for him. And it was actually a thigh, and there's some symbolism there about the priesthood. But there is preparation here going, and then he says, now go upstairs, and I want you to rest, and tomorrow I'm gonna tell you all that God wants me to tell you. So I, there's, there's something important here for us to see, and that is that God is at work through his providence. Now here's what providence is. It's one definition. Dale Ralph Davis, I think, does a good job. It's very wordy, but listen. That providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way God has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the basis or the bias of our wills. It's an amazing reality that God works through all those variable things to bring about his purposes. And there are, there are some that say that God's providence is something unique to major figures in the history of salvation. In other words, okay, God was providential in the life of Saul. And maybe he was that way in the life of, of Moses and Job and Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua and David and the disciples and Jesus and Peter and John, but he is not at work that way in my life. Not with the common people, but with those key people in the, the thread of his redemptive plan. Sure, yes, he's provident, providential, but, but not with me. Let's test that against Scripture. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Proverbs 20, 24. Listen, the, the, the clear teaching of scripture is that God, yes, was providential in the lives of these key people, but he is also providential in the lives of his children. Now, you need to think through that. You need to think through how God 
is at work, providentially working out his plan. And here's what's going on with with the story with Saul, because it goes back to that passage then. He's heard the cry of Israel's idolatrous heart for deliverance, but he's also heard Israel's desperate cry for relief. He's heard their cry for a king, and he's heard their cry for relief. And that's why he says, I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, the, these, these foolish and stubborn people do not cease to be the objects of God's compassion and mercy. Now, just think about that. This is, this is not God being light on sin. He's not excusing their wickedness, but he is exercising mercy when they deserve justice. Now God is still the providential orchestrator of our lives, not just in the big things that happen, again, that's another way we kind of confuse this, but also in the small details that make up our life. Do you notice just as we read through the story, just the details, the minute details that are going on here, He knows when we leave our homes for work, if we're running late or if we feel like we're leaving on time. Have you ever left late for work hoping that you might make it and you do? Have you ever left for work thinking you got plenty of time and you end up being late? Okay, God is working his providence in all of that. He knows who that person is that we're standing in line with at the post office, the person who's complaining because they aren't enough people at the window to help this line go fast, or the other person who could really use your help in filling out the forms. God knows of the providence of that reality. He's aware of those characters that are gonna be there in your life, and it, to you, it just seems random. I opened the door, these people came in, we all had boxes, now we're standing in line. But God is orchestrating every event, every detail that's going on. He was there orchestrating all those red lights that you had to stop at on your way to that performance that you were running late for. He's at work in your clogged drains and in your scattered brains. He's active in your distresses as well as your messes. He uses the mundane things of life as the means of his providence. But be sure of this, he is at work. The point is that your sinfulness doesn't remove God's merciful providence over your life. And listen, that, that is something to jump up and shout thank you for. Because we are sinful. Saved. But we still sin. And if God was not merciful, if God was not gracious, we would get justice. And so we all are the beneficiaries of that providence in our lives, that merciful providence at work in our lives. So thank God for his kindness in providentially sticking with you when you don't deserve it. Now in Saul's case, all these activities we're coming to a head. There's a third one here, finding the king, and that's ultimately what we find in the last portion of chapter nine. But isn't it interesting that the, this chapter nine is, is driving to verse 27. 
As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Here the providence of God is at work to direct Saul to the word of God. And I just want to challenge you. Do you look at the providence that's going on in your life and ask yourself the question, what is God trying to teach me through this providence about himself? Now we have the benefit of having the written word of God. Saul had Samuel who was going to tell him the actual word of God. And friends, that is, it's all part of God's kindness. It's all part of his mercy for us that in our rebellion, in our sin, he is still at work in our lives. He hasn't just wandered off and left us alone. He is a merciful, compassionate God. Now secondly, not only is he a detailed, providential God, he is also, um, he is also one who assures us with his word in the midst of our rebellion. This was all overwhelming for Saul. He got on a journey to find some donkeys and this man of God is talking about, or talking about Saul and his house being the all desirable in Israel. I mean, all Israel is, is desiring you is what he's saying. Can you imagine what's going on in his mind? He's a young man. And by all that we can see here, he's a young man that had kind of a shy nature to him. Um, didn't think that he was really that, that, that much, that kind of a big of a guy. I'm talking here as far as popularity is concerned. But the man of God is saying, don't mind about the donkeys, they are fine. And then he's saying something about me and my family being the desire of all Israel. What in the world is going on? How would this man know about the donkeys? What on earth does he mean by all that is desirable in Israel? You can just imagine him trying to wrestle through all of this stuff. Now, of course, we know because we have been given this insight in this passage, right? It isn't that Israel desired a king, but rather they were demanding a king. And when Saul responds, he gives reasons why what was being proposed doesn't make any sense. So Saul answered, verse 21, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? I mean, why, why are you doing this to me? He's already gone through this, this meal where he's given this, this seat of honor and he's, he's being anointed why, why are you giving me, me this attention? Why are you focusing on me? I, I'm a Benjamite, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Saul is saying, Who, why are you talking to me? I'm, I'm just a country boy. There's nothing about me that's worthy of such attention. My, my father is Kish. Have you heard of him before? No. He's a relative of nobody in the smallest tribe of Benjamin. Why so much attention on me? And now we pick up the story on the next morning. And Samuel asks that the servant boy walks on ahead. And he has something to say to Saul. He's going to make known the word of God. And this is where we pick up him, anointing him. Verse 1, the anointing of the king. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their 
surrounding enemies. Again, this is more amazing activity and an amazing message. Anoint Saul, kissing Saul, giving Saul a word from the Lord. You are, you are anointed, you will reign, you will save the people from, of the Lord from their enemies. God's mercy will come through you. And then there's also this assurance that comes through the word. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, this particular section of scripture, there's a sense in which we would all like this to be true for us, right? God, tell me what what you want me to do and give me a sign, right? But I, I want you to notice the nature of these signs. These signs are there to affirm that God is the one who is administering this, that God is over this, and that God is establishing this in Saul. We've got to understand where Saul's coming from. He went out looking for donkeys, and now he's getting anointed, right? He's just a 20-year-old kid. What's happening here? Now, the details of these signs are staggering. And these details show that God is at work in this whole process. Sign number one, two men will meet you at Rachel's tomb and tell you two things. Number one, the donkeys are found. Number two, that his father has stopped worrying about the donkeys and is worried about his son. This is specific detail. Number two, three men, not two, but three men will meet you at the oak tree who are on their way to Bethel, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another uh, with a skin of wine. And these men will give you two loaves of bread. This is mathematical details, right? And then the last one here, he will meet prophets on his way to Gibeah who are fresh from the high place, and they will be strumming their guitars, playing pipes, worshiping God, and the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will join in their prophesying, and you will be turned into another man. Go see these things happen. I mean, this is, these are details. And, 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 and we're told, ultimately, that these things actually did take place. These are not some kind of vague generalities. You know what it's like when you, uh, when you go to a Chinese restaurant, no offense to anyone here, and you open up a fortune cookie, and there's usually some statement. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, that, 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 that could be me. Or you read a horoscope, right? Oh yeah, you know, you're gonna, someone's gonna encounter you today. Well, no kidding, you know? I mean, it's some kind of a general fuzzy thing that anything can fit into. That's not what we have here. These are specific, particular, detailed signs that are there to assure Saul that this is divine activity that is taking place. And then in verse seven, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now, what does that mean? This expression, do what your hand finds to do, is an expression of, um, it's a military expression. In other words, you now have the responsibility, you now have the freedom to exercise authority Militarily. 
This is not just kind of a general do whatever you want to do. This is a military expression. What is, what is that king or what is this prince who is the deliverer supposed to be doing? Delivering his people from their enemies. How do you do that? You go out to war. You suppress the enemies. You're that champion. Remember, what did the people want? They wanted a king that would do what? That would go out into battle. So this is what he's saying. When you've experienced these signs, now do whatever your hand has to do. Okay, that's the idea of what's going on here. Now, we're not gonna emphasize this too much this morning, but he is sending him in this third sign to... Um, uh, where is it? Um, to, 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 to Gibeah, and at Gibeah there is a garrison of the Philistines. And once he prophesies, what is he supposed to do? Do what your hand is supposed to do. So one of the questions is, why does Saul not right away take on that responsibility that he's been given to do after he's seen the signs. Just kind of file that away, okay? So God providentially orchestrates the details of Saul's anointing as king. He assures him with these signs throughout the promised word, and then he tells Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait. And that in seven days, Saul would arrive and tell him what to do next. And so we pick it up at verse, verse eight. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days shall you wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. So, um, the son that went looking for donkeys has been anointed by God's prophet to be Israel's prince and deliverer. He's been turned into another man by the power of the Spirit of God, like Samson who was overcome with the Spirit of God to be that deliverer, so now Saul has that mantle of the Spirit of God on his life to deliver the people. Verse nine tells us he gave Saul another heart. Now we must be careful here, this is not, this is not conversion language. Okay, he's not saying here that Saul was converted, now Saul is a follower of Jesus, that's not what's going on here, but God empowered him to be a deliverer of the people in that capacity as prince, ultimately it will be king, okay? The spirit comes on him as a gift to enable him to be the king that Israel has asked for. Now, let's just stack, step back a little bit here and think about is there anything that God wants us to see about ourselves here? Because it's not gonna be the same. We're not Saul, all right? It is God's mercy that even in our rebellion that God would continue to guide and direct us, not just through his providence, but also through his word. Just think, when you are sinful, when you are angry, when you're... Um, when you're having thoughts of, of vengeance, when you are discouraged or you're anxious, God isn't saying, see, you're being sinful. My word is closed to you. No, God is merciful. 
to us, even in our sinfulness, that his word is still living and breathing and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word given to Saul was a word of assurance that came through these signs. The word given to us is full of signs and fulfillments, full of promises and counsel, full of wisdom and direction. And God still is at work through his word in our lives, even when we are sinful. And this is why even if you are struggling with sin, God wants you to gather with God's people. He wants you to be under the ministry of the word of God. He wants you to open up the, the Bible. And the moment that you say, I'm not going to do that, the moment you start to, to callous your heart away from the word of God, you're moving to very, very dangerous territory. But don't think and don't believe the lie of Satan that says, see, you're sinful. You shouldn't be reading God's word. You're not worthy of it. No, you're not worthy of it, but God mercifully allows you to and uses it to help you and to grow you and to deal with the sin that you're struggling with. And friends, that's mercy. In a state of rebellion that God still gives us his word, ministers his word, and the Holy Spirit is active through that ministry of the word. That is mercy, and we ought to jump up and down and say thank you, God, for that kindness to us. Now as we move on to the next thing, we're assured by the word of God, but we're also affirmed by the strength of God. And this is, this is actually an interesting nuance in this passage because uh, we've, we've already seen the three signs, but now um, we're given kind of a, a closer look at the third sign. Kind of goes on and continues, but gives us a closer look. And what is happening with this third sign? Look at verse 10 and following. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all the people... Uh, when, when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and, uh, answered, and, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Now you can hear the sense of amazement and the stir that these events cause among the people. This is Saul's hometown. This is, you go back to, to verse one of chapter nine. This is the same place. He's back home. These are the people that know him. These are the people that worked out in the fields or, or maybe you know, he supplied the donkeys for. They know who he is. And yet when Saul comes in, into town and he sees the prophets there and he is prophesying with them, the people are like, who in the world is this? What is going on? What has come over the son of Kish? Now the modern version of this might read this way. Isn't that the donkey herder's son carrying on like a prophet? And you think that you've seen it all. Wonders never cease. That's kind of the idea of the expression here. What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? 
And so this idea of is Saul among the prophets, it's actually a, a, an expression that has the idea of wonders never cease. Isn't it amazing? Now, isn't it interesting that, that, that maybe um, you've, you've seen someone grow up and they maybe go off to college and they come back and you haven't seen them for a few years and, and they're just like a completely different person. I mean, they're changed. And you're like, this is, this, this is the, same, the same boy that lived down the street that used to ride his little tricycle up in front? and all. It's, it's that kind of thing. And now look where he is, right? I mean, I, I went to school went to college, and um, I was uh, at a Jiffy Lube one time, and I looked up at the picture in Jiffy Lube, and it was, I can't remember his name right now, Jeff Hall, I think his name is, and it's like, I was in school with him, and he's now the president of Jiffy Lube. Wonders never cease, right? I mean, it's just, these are, it's that kind of thing that's going on here. What in the world is going on? Here's, here's Saul, and he's prophesying. But it's clear to them there's something, there's something different about Saul, and there is. The Holy Spirit has come upon him, but they don't know that. They can't see that. But Saul understood that there was something divine going on. The circumstances of that day were amazingly orchestrated. The signs that Samuel spoke were the word of the Lord. They had come true, and now he has had this powerful experience. Something seriously is going on. So put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. All this is happening in just a couple of days. It's hard to believe. And add to that his, his shy nature. The day's experiences have left him just asking what is actually taking place. I mean, he, he, he knows. I mean, his, his head is still greasy from the oil, right? He's, his tummy is still full from the meal he had the night before. Um, his servant is still with him, so he has an awareness of what's going on, but just kind of processing it all. Now, God gives his children spiritual gifts that find their source in him alone. This is what's going on with, with Saul here. God is empowering him now to prophesy. And for us, the way we connect with this is we say, you know what, God does give each of us various spiritual gifts. Gifts, and when we use those gifts, it gives evidence to others that God is at work. Others may step back and wonder, who is that person? I mean, I've, I've, I've never seen them kind of use that gift in that way. They've changed. And you might see a difference in yourself also as you exercise your spiritual gift. Now, I'll just share a little bit of, of my story. Um, my pastor-teacher gift is... Uh, is actually something that I really attribute not to my own strength and ability, but to a divine thing. I am, I am really, by nature, a shy person. Okay? You're like, oh, come on, you're not. I am. Okay? If there's one thing I loathe doing in church, it's giving announcements. That's why we have J. Do do it, and Matt, and you know why? Because... I'm not, I'm not one of these charismatic guys that can just kind of get up and just kind of just talk and all and, and, and just make people laugh and all that kind of stuff. I'm not one of those guys. But God called me into ministry so that when I am standing before a group of people with God's word, there's a different Rod Phillips. I remember the first time I ever preached. 
Fortunately, there was a pulpit, but my, my knees were like, I mean, they were shaking like this. I mean, literally, my legs were shaking like this. And, and I, was, I was preaching, but it was, it was heretical. Well, maybe it wasn't heretical. It was just really, really bad preaching. I was preaching about how God, um, how he, God multiplied the loaves and the fishes, and, and God wants to multiply you that way, and he breaks you apart, and you see, I mean, going directions there, like God wants to multiply you because you're like the loaves and the fish, and it's just like, and everyone was very, very kind and gracious, and the little old lady said, oh, that was such a great message. Um, but I was terrified. Yet, God was showing me a gift that he had put in me. There was a, there was a call, there was a, there was a desire, and, and, and that was not only something that I saw to be true, but other people then also began to say, you know what? There's something going on here. We see something different in you. Now let's just change and let's just think about think about you and your gifts. And I'll just bring up a few uh, a few examples. Um, those of you who have the gift of evangelism. I mean, to me, it's amazing how how God seems to just open up opportunities and conversations with people um, that that you are able to to just slip right in and to share the gospel. There is, there's a spiritual gift of evangelism. Now, we're, we're all supposed to evangelize, right? But there are some people who just have this incredible gift. And other people can be with them as they're out someplace, and they're just like, how is it that, you know, every waitress that comes your way, you're, I mean, you know, they're, they're coming to church next week, you know, and you're, you're in line at the post office, and you're talking with people about the Lord, and I, I have a hard time just opening my mouth and, there's a gift that's there. Other people see it, and you may experience it too. Some of you have the gift of helps. You can discern the needs of other people, and you have this, this a way of, of coming alongside them and sensing that there's a need and desiring to help, and you just kind of slide right in there where other people are just like, I didn't even know there was anything going on. And then you begin to identify, this person really has, a, has a, a gift to be able to identify these things. And so you, you see that in someone, and you see it's not just a personality thing, there's a God thing going on here. And then and another one, just the last one would be, those of you, uh, some of you have the gift of giving. You're just incredibly gracious with the resources that God has given you, and you, you use those resources to help people who are struggling, to help people to maybe make decisions and whatnot, and, and there's an incredible gift, and other people say, I would love to have that gift, but God hasn't given that, that gift, but he's given that gift to other people, and you might be that person, but that gift is exercised, not because it's a natural thing in you, it is a divine spiritual gift, and so here is Saul, and he is exercising that gift that God has given him. And just like that, God wants us to exercise the gift that he has given us. Now there's, there's a positive and there's a negative side to this. Because when Saul goes into town, what are the people doing? They're actually kind of mocking him. And a lot of times when people are, are moved by God, um, they change, and people wonder, what's going on with you? What's got, what's got a hold of you? You know, preacher boy, or, you know, whoever you might be. And they, they, there's a sense that you can be mocked. There's a negative side, there's a positive side. And 
And the bottom line is this, isn't it a merciful thing that even when we are in rebellion to God, that he allows us to continue using those gifts and being, and being the strength behind them? If that were not true, friends, it would be really hard to do church on a Sunday morning. Because we would all get up, and maybe we'd get angry at a child, or maybe a spouse, and we'd all say to ourselves, I'm not worthy to use that gift. I'm not coming in today. And we're all sitting here, we're all the holy ones, because we didn't get, you know, we didn't sin at all. No, we're, we're sinful people who are still given the wonderful mercy by God to exercise the gifts, even though we may be in rebellion. Just think about that. Because there are times when you have exercised your spiritual gift and you have been sinful in the midst of it. And you've had sinful thoughts in the midst of it. And you struggle in the midst of it. And yet God says, you know what? I'm still gonna allow you to use that gift. I'm still gonna work through you using that gift. That is his mercy. You don't deserve it. That's why it's called mercy. The last one here is what I'm calling the mysterious kingdom of God. The mysterious kingdom of God. As the events of this day unfold, it is worth us noting that so far, the title of king has not been used. Saul has, referred to, has been referred to as prince, chapter nine and verse 16, chapter 10 and verse one. It's only when we get to the following verses that we are introduced to the subject of the kingdom but it is mentioned as the hidden secret that only a, a few people are aware of. Samuel, Saul, and, and maybe to some degree even the servant because he's been there kind of in the shadows um, as things have unfolded. He may not comprehend everything because if you remember, Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead, right? But let's look now at verse 13 and following. When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle, by the way, his name is Abner, okay? Um, we find that in chapter 14, um, said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw uh, they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys have been found. You know, crickets, crickets, right? But about the matter of the kingdom, shh, of which Samuel had spoken, shh, he did not tell him anything. Now what's interesting is that the word find in this passage occurs 12 times. Donkeys are found, the prince who would be king is found, the two men and the three men and the prophets are found, and in God's mercy a kingdom will be found, God is actively at work establishing his kingdom, but few see what he is doing. So when I say the, the mysterious kingdom of God, we're talking about the mercy of God is behind the outworking of the mysterious kingdom of God. We don't always see what God is up to. But he's certainly at work. Now Saul's silence is an interesting thing. 
If we're tempted to jump on Saul for not disclosing the events of the, these days, I, I want to encourage you to back off a little bit. You may be onto something. I think there ultimately is going to be a pattern here, but um, I, I think we just need to kind of back off and just, just consider some things. Um, he's 20 years old, shy, rather insignificant young man who's had quite an incredible couple of days. Would you not agree? All right. Now, what, what do young people say when they've gone to Disneyland for three days, climbed to the top of Mount Whitney, and traversed through Death Valley? They come home, and Dad says, Hey, son, how was your trip? Good. Okay. Um, that may not be the extent of what's going on here. I think that Saul is still trying to take it all in, not sure exactly what he should say. And quite frankly, you don't walk up to your uncle and say, hey, by the way, I'm your new king, bow down to me. That probably would not have gone well. He probably would have been handed a shovel and said, you know where the donkeys are? I need you to go out there, okay? Um, so there's probably some, some wisdom, there's probably some other things that are going on here, but let's be careful we're not making too much of that. What's, what's happening here, though, is we're seeing that Samuel and Saul are the ones who are aware of what is happening. And a couple of, you know, as we move on in the chapter, we'll see how, how God uses the lot to actually identify Saul as this king. And so there, there's a sense in which this is all secret, but this king is going to be found. The mystery is ongoing. The kingdom is at work here, but it's happening in secret, but it will be revealed. So there's much about God's dealing with us that others don't know, or that we may not even be privy to. And once in a while, we're, we are, we're blessed to hear about the quiet work of God through our lives. And, and I, I have experienced that um, in a couple of different ways. I've experienced it through letters, and I've experienced it through emails, where maybe 15 years ago, um, I was ministering at a particular place, and all of a sudden I get an email from someone that says, you know, you preached a particular message on a particular subject, and um, that, that changed my perspective, and I want to thank you for, and I can't even remember the message. Maybe I can't even remember the person. But God sometimes gives you those blessings um, that would be similar to that. Now, I realize I'm a pastor, and that might be something that people connect with, but just just know this, that, that the ministry of the kingdom and your, your activity and your place in the ongoing ministry of the kingdom may be somewhat secret to you. You may not see everything that's going on, but God is at work. And when you exercise your gift, and when you open up your mouth for the glory of God, God is at work, and you may not see the results, but you can trust that God is, in his providential care, flowing out his purposes of his providence to accomplish his will. So in those mundane, run-of-the-mill ministry opportunities, God's kingdom is being built. People's lives are being changed. And I want to encourage you, take the time, maybe to think through in your life, maybe some people that impacted you in a certain way. What an encouragement it is to get a little card in the mail from someone you haven't seen from years ago, just saying thank you for your impact in my life at this particular time. I really appreciate how God used you. Wouldn't that encourage you if you got that? 
And maybe you can be the person to write that note to encourage someone else. See, because God is at work. Not everyone knows it, not everyone sees it, but he is at work. I just want to bring this to a close by just, just kind of maybe reminding us of what we work through here and then just asking a couple of questions. I want to remind you that it's his mercy that is behind the orchestrating of our lives. And those times when you're tempted to get angry at your circumstances, just remember, God is at work, even in those horrible circumstances. You can't find that parking spot next to the front door at Macy's. You have to park over and you know, wherever it might be. I know it's frustrating, but God has orchestrated that for a reason. He is providentially at work, even in your suffering. He is merciful to reveal his word to us. That you can, every day and any day, open up his word is his kindness to you. It's his mercy to us. It is his mercy that empowers us to use his gifts for his glory, even when our heart may not be exactly right with him. This is mercy. And thank God for merciful ministry when we have a sinful, rebellious, challenged heart. It is his mercy that is at work even when others may not see that ministry taking place or his work taking place. How will you, how will you um, respond to God's steady mercy in your life? I mean, here, here's just a steady revelation of his mercy, his mercy, his mercy. How, how do we respond to that? Will we choose to ignore it? Say, well, okay, big deal. I hope not. I mean, I hope just from our time here today, we'll just begin to see things a little bit differently. Not just to say that God is a providential God, but his providence is part of his mercy. That's taking things a little further, isn't it? Maybe you'd be tempted just to take it for granted. Maybe you will be tempted to presume upon it. Well, if God is merciful, then I can do this because he's a merciful God, and therefore, you know, (laughs) he's not hitting me, no. That's presuming upon him. That's not the kind of response that he wants. And even when you presume, he's merciful, but you don't just go ahead and say, well, I'm gonna keep on sinning that grace may abound. Okay, in this case, that mercy may continue. That's not how God would want us to respond, although there are people that do that. Will you be thankful? Will you show gratitude? But ultimately, will you be motivated by it? Motivated to look at your life through the lens of God's mercy. Motivated to be thankful that the things that he has called you to are the outflow and the ability to, are the outflow of his mercy at work in your life. So you're thankful, but you're motivated then to do it. And you're not always questioning yourself and say, well, I can't because I'm sinful and I can't because of this. He still wants you to pursue him. He still wants you to to move ahead and to use those gifts and to, to rest on his providence. 
What's about to unfold in the next few chapters is the failure of Israel's chosen king to take seriously the mercy that has been shown to him by God. He will fail, but God will be merciful. He will be disobedient to God's prophet, but God will be merciful. He will become self-centered and self-preserving, but God will be merciful. Be careful that you don't get angry at that. Because when we sin, how do we want God to be? We want to be merciful. So let's learn that together. Let's grow together. Now just as a final closing thought. The man who would be king went out looking for donkeys. The Christ who is king came into Jerusalem sitting on a donkey. There's a lot about this passage that we really didn't get into that actually takes us right to Christ in Bethlehem. Because Jesus Christ ultimately is the king. Saul is the people's choice. And that would be made clear. Ultimately, David would be the next human choice. But ultimately, the divine God will be Christ. And he will come. And he'll come and he will set up his throne through a cross. And he will reign from heaven. Ultimately, he will return to earth. But he will be king. Let us rejoice over the mercy of God and how he works his will through seemingly mundane events that frustrate us to no end. Gifts that we have, that we struggle with, and the word of God that we have been blessed to to study and to muse over, he is at work. Lord, we are in awe of your kindness to us. The scripture says your mercy is new every morning because you are a faithful God. And sometimes, Lord, the things that we looked at today can just seem like they're just part of the events of life and we we don't see them laced with your merciful, compassionate care. May you give us a fresh vision today. May we be motivated and empowered to serve you, to live for you, to long for you because of your mercy. In your precious name, amen.